God, thank you so much for your love and your mercy. I pray for Sean, uh, not just this morning, but um, for the ongoing future, Lord, and all the, all the work that you're doing in his church plant. I thank you for his friendship. I pray that you would bless his marriage and the church. I thank you for uh, how he's moving or how you're moving and how Sean's working um, in, in the church. And we pray that people would continually meet Christ uh, at his church and that you would make um, an, an unbelievable impact in the city of Charlotte through his church. Uh, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are going through uh, a series right now called uh, We Are. And this series is based on what it means for us to be a church. And so uh, over this next six weeks, one of the goals that Joe and I have, Joe's the other pastor here if you're new, um, is uh, one of the goals is for you to kind of know what it means to not just be a church member in general, but even what it means here at Remedy, what it means to be a church member. What are some of the things that we want you to know about what it means to be a church member? And so the first week we did, we are the body of Christ. We looked at 1 Corinthians 12 and we saw that everybody's giftings are unique, but that's good. And that everybody is a part of the body and that we want you to use those gifts. The second thing we saw, uh, Joe preached the next week, uh, that we are the family of God. That everybody here are brothers and sisters and in the same family. And so because of that, uh, no matter what's going on between each other and with each other, we strive for unity. We discuss everything because we'll always be a part of the family. Uh, last week, I talked about the fact that we're an embassy and what that means for us to love and care for each other, but also what it means for us to be the spokesperson for the king uh, whenever we, in the outward aspect. And today, we're going to talk about that we are a royal priesthood, as it says here in First Peter, as it says in First Peter. So what I'm going to do when I go through First Peter is uh, Peter's got some thoughts on holiness. And so I'm going to exposit the text in First uh, Peter 2, 1 through 12. And as I get to the third point where we see, actually, he calls us a holy priesthood in verse 5. He calls us a royal priesthood in verse 9. And so after I exposit the text, I'm going to talk about some implications, three different implications about what it specifically means then for us to be a royal priesthood here. So whenever we talk about a royal priesthood, don't think that that just means the pastors. That means all of you are part of that. You'll see that in the text and what it means for you, therefore, as a church member to be uh, a royal priesthood. So the idea is that as we talk about these, these six different metaphors throughout these six weeks, as you see that we're the body of Christ, we're the family of God, we're the embassy of God, we're the royal priesthood, you can put all these metaphors together. And there's more in the Bible, but you can put all these things together and you can see what it means to be a church member and what God is calling us to, to be good church members so that we can bless each other, care for each other, love each other and practice all the one another's, but also reach the city. So today we'll, we'll talk about what it means to be a royal priesthood. Um, as always, I like to start out, uh, if you're going to be a church member, it's good to make sure you know what a church is. Uh, and so I want to talk about that again, and then we'll have a little introduction uh, from Romans. So a church member is, it comes from the Greek word ekklesia, um, the called out ones, the called out to assemble, to be together ones. A church, uh, while we refer to uh, a building as a church sometimes, we can just call it a building. You don't ever have to call this building a church if you don't want to, because the church according to the New Testament, is the people. It's the people that gather together to worship God together and the people that scatter throughout the week to serve their city and care for each other. So uh, 
One, one definition of a church this guy has, a guy named Jonathan Lehman, a church membership. His book says, it's a body of believers in Jesus together, drawing their life from Jesus in regular, practical, and organized way that accelerate their progress for him. So uh, as we become Christians, there's no idea in the scriptures that you are a Christian without being a part of the church. Once you're a Christian, you join a church wherever it is. And then once you're there, you stay in there and you, you don't join a church as we saw last week. You submit yourself to a church and their leadership and the rest of the body. And you do that indefinitely until uh, the Lord calls you somewhere else. And so this is what it means to be a church. It's the called out ones coming together to be the family of God, to be the body of Christ. And you, with the rest of your people in your church, do everything you can to reach the city and love and care for each other. Um, now, I want to I start with this introduction because I think it's particularly helpful coming off the heels of last week and going into this coming week. Uh, this, for corporate prayer this past week, whenever we were praying, I was praying with Tim, and Tim referenced Romans twelve sixteen, and it made my mind race. And so I went and looked it up, um, and I thought that it's an, actually a really good introduction to what I want to try to tie last week and this week together. Romans chapter 12, verse 16, just three short little sentences, but it has three, I think, amazing statements for us to really think about what it means to really love each other and care for each other and highlight our differences. It says this, Romans twelve sixteen: live in harmony with each other. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So I just want to look at each one of those and then we'll go into the text. Live in harmony with each other. So it, this, this word harmony for neo, this is a verb. It means to be intelligent or to be wise or of the same mind, agreed to, cherish the same views of, of other people, be harmonious. And so it says to live in harmony. So if you know anything about music, uh, if someone's singing the melody and someone else starts singing the harmony, whenever they're singing the harmony, they're doing something different than what the other people are doing, but when put all together, it fits when they're doing it. And when put all together and done correctly, it's a beautiful thing. It, it creates all together a music that is absolutely wonderful. And in the same way, when we live in harmony with each other, it means the church is this, that we are the body. We're not all doing the same thing, but whenever we're all doing what God's called us together at the same time, it creates a beautiful thing. So live in harmony with each other. It doesn't mean we're always going to believe the same kind of secondary and third. We'll believe this, this, all the first tier issues together, but we won't believe all that. But nevertheless, we're all using our gifts and we're living in harmony with each other. We're not all doing the same thing, but whenever we're all doing our things that we're called together at the same time, it's a beautiful thing like listening to melodies and harmonies going together. So we live in harmony with each other. This is what it means to be the church. And then it says, associate with the lowly. Associate with the lowly. In other words, not being haughty. Haughty means to set your mind on influence and power and riches. And it says, don't do this, but instead associate. This, this, this is a verb, sunapego. It means to get carried away in or get led into and get along with. Like be, be brought into with uh, basically no ability to, to stop. And it tells you to associate, to be brought into the lowly, the grieving, the depressed, the low in spirit, the humble. So part of being a good church member is to associate with the lowly. Don't be haughty. Don't be the kind of person that wants power, influence, power, uh, riches, influence, honor, all that stuff. But instead, 
run away from trying to look great in front of people, but instead associate yourself with the lowly. This is the exact opposite thing that most of ourselves within our own kind of selfish heart strive to do. The exact same opposite thing of the world wants us to do, but it's the exact thing that the church does. The church associates with the lowly. Um, Not people that we think need our pity. That's not what it is. It's not show pity to pitiable people. It's associate, as in get carried into, lead yourself, and go along with. You are moved into. The reason why that we do that is not because we think people need our pity, but instead we realize that we are the lowly, and Christ came to us to save us. And in the same way, that's how we are good church members to people. So we live in harmony with each other. We, we love our differences of giftings. And when all done right, it's, it's beautiful. We also don't try to go after influence, power, and riches. But instead, we intentionally put ourselves around people that would be um, grieving, depressed, low in spirit, humble, because that's what Christ did for us. That's what a good church member does. And then the last thing it says, don't be wise in your own eyes. Literally, don't become a wise person to yourself. Uh, and so we, the truth is, the reason why we need a church, <laughs> the reason why uh, when you get saved, you don't go straight to heaven. We know that. And you don't just be a lone ranger, but God tells us to be church members. It's for the, one of these, this, is, this is one of the reasons. It's because none of us are as wise as we think. And we have to have other people around us constantly. God has graciously um, helped us with this problem that we are not as wise as we think. And he places us into a community, a community that helps us and guides us. God gives every church member, or every Christian, a church to belong to. And the church is Christ's instrument for us to not think of ourselves too highly. And so it's a blessing. It's a definite blessing. So that helps us as we're going into this particular week. Now, the, the, the main theme of the text we're going to look at is holiness. So uh, if you're able to, I'd love for you to stand with me. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. Uh, if you can't, that's fine. Uh, after I finish reading it, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and you'll say, thanks be to God. So First Peter chapter 2, verse 1, it says this. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. And here it is, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying a stone in, uh, in Zion, a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who don't believe that stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Verse nine. But you are a chosen race. Here it is again. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. So what we're going to see here in this particular text we just read is Peter has three thoughts that lead us into holiness. Three thoughts that lead us into holiness. Now, I want to make sure we understand what he's doing. So on both sides of this text, verse 1 and verse 11 and 12, he gives really practical just easy commands. Here's the commands. Here's the commands. Do this. Don't do this. If you want to live holy lives, do that. But in the middle from two to uh, nine, he's actually going to give us gospel driven theology about how we can pursue holiness, but it's not commands. It's not commands. So book ended with commands and verses on verse one and verses 11 and 12 are the commands. But in the middle in two through nine, there are great verses that help us understand uh, the good theology about what the gospel has done for us so that we can have holy lives. And so uh, whenever we're looking at this, uh, I want us to understand when we're, when we're told in Scripture to pursue holiness, uh, it's not a, a checkbox, one, two, three, we achieve it. And so whenever I, I've titled this, I've titled it Peter's Thoughts on Holiness. And I've intentionally not said Peter's steps or Peter's, Peter's procedure or recipe or formula or methods or techniques because you just think, well, if it's that, then I can do number one, got it. And then I move on to number two, got it. I get number three. And once I got number three, I'm holy. And, and that's, that, that's not how it's going to work in your life. We all realize that's not going to how it's worked. So uh, we will, for the rest of our lives, pursue holiness. And that shouldn't make us feel like, oh, this is a daunting thing. I can't go after it. Instead, uh, we go after it anyway because of what Christ has done. But here are three thoughts on holiness. And all three of these collectively help us pursue holiness for our life. But you will never, and I will never, ever... (laughs) finally arrive at holiness until we're glorified. And so I've intentionally not named these steps or procedures or recipes or processes or techniques because there is no checking it off and then you got it. And as a matter of fact, these aren't necessarily things to do. They're Peter's thoughts on holiness for you to know that help you. So they're, they're gospel-centered uh, theological statements that help you understand. So um, we're going to look at these, but let's go ahead and remember, uh, as I said, Verse 1 and verse 11 and 12 are the bookends that tell us the direct things on holiness. So look at verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So if, if you're more of like, just tell me what it is I need to do. So I, 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 theology is great, but I, I just need, I need commands. That's how I live. That's how I am. I'm a type A. Well, here's one. Just everything that's malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy and all slander, all that in your life, stop doing it. That's it. All right. Look at verse 11 and 12. Okay. Yeah, it's just like that. No problem. So, all right. Now, if you remember verse 11, we looked at last week as, as uh, kind of helping us understand embassy. Uh, behold, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, just highlighting that this, where we are right now, is not our home. Our home's in heaven. We're citizens there. And so we're really part of an embassy. As it says, then it says this, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. When you see Gentiles, just read non-believers. Likely all of us are Gentiles. We can be Christians now as Gentiles. Keep your conduct among the non-believers honorable. So live holy lives. Pursue 
do the things that you're supposed to do. Don't do the things you're not. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the visitation. So we see how, kind of these bookends here on both sides. Uh, and now when we get into verse 2, we're going to see Peter's thoughts on uh, that help you uh, achieve measures of holiness throughout your Christian life. Although you'll never necessarily achieve it. Um, this side of either Christ's return or until you're glorified. But that's okay. Because Philippians 1.6 tells us that he who began a good work, namely your justification, your salvation, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He will, you will be fully sanctified one day. And that's good news. All right, so verse 2. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. So this is something you can do, but it's not necessarily uh, a direct killing of sin, but doing this will assist you and help you in growing more holy. So go ahead and put up number one. Um, Long for pure spiritual milk, or just say it this way, long for the word. Now I'm aware in Hebrews that he says, many of you are still on milk and you should be on meat. Don't think of pure spiritual milk here as like what babies Christians are on and you should be on meat. That, in this particular context, Peter's not using that. He's using a different analogy. He's talking about babies. And so the key word here in verse two is longing, longing in a way that a baby longs to eat. And you know, every three hours that they long and the longing is obvious, right? It's very obvious. They long for it. And so what he's telling us is, um, we should be like that. Now, if you're noticing, uh, this, this first thing is telling us that we're to long for something. So it's, it's commanding, uh, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk. It's not commanding necessarily an action as much as it's commanding a feeling. How do you command a feeling? Feel sad. Feel mad. Like you can't command feelings usually. And so we need the Holy Spirit to, to come and do this. So we pray, Lord, help me long to be in your word every day. Help me, as, as you look at this word long, you can put ache, desire, yearn, want, wish, burn, crave, hunger. These are, the, these are all the words that you can associate with the word long here. Ache, desire, yearn, want, wish, burn, crave, hunger. Help me have that kind of feelings for your word every day. In the same way that a baby after three hours is screaming his head off because he needs to eat again. Help me have that deep desire to want to be in your word every day. This is the way that we should think about uh, wanting to be in the word. A daily longing or hunger or craving, a, a daily unrest that until we're in his word, we're not satisfied. We're not happy. We need to be in the word. Tony Maria says this, I read the Bible daily because Jesus Christ speaks to me from his word. Who is like him and who am I? Reading the Bible, therefore, is not a duty. It's a privilege. If God is God and we are his children and he has given it to us, it's an absolute privilege to be able to be in his word. So Peter's first thought on holiness, it's, 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 it's kind of a command, but it's a commanding of a feeling, which is very difficult. But so we have to go to God in prayer and we have to say, Lord, help me every day long for his word. Now, uh, you might say, but that never happens. So what do I do? Just wait for the longing? No. Don't wait for the longing to read the word. Even if you don't long, do it anyway. But that's legalism. Okay. But what's the alternative? Not ever reading the Bible until you're waiting on a feeling? That, that's, in my mind, worse. 
So do it anyway. And when you don't have the longing, say, God, I wish I had the longing and I don't. I confess that I wish I had it. Forgive me of that and give it to me. But I'm going to do it anyway. You, You always read the word. Read the word. You pray for the longing. And when you do have it and for that season, it's just beautiful. I mean, it's just a beautiful season of life. No doubt about it. Um, but nevertheless, you, you long for it and you do it. And as you do it, we know this, that God promises that whenever we're in his word and we're, we're reading his word, we're memorizing his word, we're meditating on his word. His word is what leads us into holiness. His word, I stored up in your word, your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Um, as we read his word, his word is what helps us sin less and obey him more. Um, so as much as I want to strive to help you understand the sufficiency of the word is the most believed and the least utilized theology that we have as Christians. I'll say it again, just to make sure you understand sufficiency as the Bible is all you need for life and godliness. The Lord has given you his Bible and because he's given it, he's promised us in second Timothy chapter two, that the word will do these specific things. It will make you wise for the sacred writings, make you wise for salvation through faith. All scriptures breathed out by God is profitable for teaching. It's profitable for reproof. It's profitable for correction. It's profitable for training in righteousness. It's profitable to make you complete, equipped for every good work. The word is totally sufficient to do all of these things. You, you don't have to have me. You really don't. You should be in a church. You have to have us, but the word does these things. And so since that's the case, since that's the case, the sufficiency of the scriptures is the most believed, but the least utilized by Christians because it will change you. So be in the word, long to be in the word, long to be in the word. So just ask yourself this question. Have I, as it says here, um, Verse three, like newborn infants for the uh, long for spiritual work that, that you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now that, that could just feel like a dig. Like Peter's like, if you actually are Christians and you've seen it in the Greek, there's, there's ifs um, and there's ifs like if you have, and you probably haven't, if you have, and I'm not sure I'm neutral. If you have, and you probably have. There's, there's many ifs. I know that's complicated, but this is an if and you probably have. So he's not digging them. He's actually, he's giving them encouragement. If you have, and I know that you have, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good, remember that you have, remember those seasons of life whenever you were in the word and your, your walk was just exploding and the Holy Spirit was speaking and you were just like, wow, let me tell you what's going on. Let me tell you what's going on. And he's reminding you, you can long for that again. At 20, at 30, at 40, at 50, at 60, at 70. If you had it at 20 or 30 and you haven't had it at 50 or whatever. He's promising you. The Lord will help you taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, that's the first one. So ask yourself this question often. Uh, When's the last time I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good in his word? When's the last time? Keep striving for it. Now, verse 4. This is where it gets pretty amazing. As you come to him. Watch this. This is amazing words. As you come to him, that's Jesus, and he's going to call Jesus a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And so this is going to call Christ a living stone, chosen and precious. As you come to Jesus, he's a living stone, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, so now he's comparing us similarly to Jesus, we're also chosen and precious, Colossians 3 
12, 14, 15 says that same thing. You are also being built up into a spiritual house. So think about what he's saying. Just like Christ is the living stone rejected by men, but in God's sight chosen and precious. Just like Christ himself is a living stone. You yourselves are like that being built up into a spiritual house. Holy... Uh, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I'm going to come back to that. But just consider what he's saying. Just like Jesus is a living stone, you are like Jesus being built up into a spiritual house. So this second thought of Peter that's leading us into holiness, this isn't a command like an action, a feeling like, like number one, but nevertheless still unbelievable. Consider what he's saying here. Number two, here, oh, it's up there. You are growing into a spiritual house. Whether you like it or not, whether you realize it or not, if you're a believer in Christ, that is true. You might feel like your week, your month was the most defeating pursuit of holiness there was. And you're just like, what's the point? I'm giving up. I'm giving in. It doesn't matter anymore. You don't need to feel that way. The truth of the scripture is just, just like Christ is a living stone, you are like that. And because of that, you are being built up into a spiritual house. The truth of it is, the theology of it is that God is sanctifying you. Let the truth of that wash over you every single day when you're feeling defeated. First Thessalonians says it this way. Now may the God of peace sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and your whole body and soul be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, so he's talking about all, you're going to be sanctified. God's going to do this. And then verse 24, just chapter 5, he says, He he calls you is faithful. And then these next words are amazing. He will surely do it. He will build you into a spiritual house. You will be growing into holiness. So Peter's second thought is unbelievably encouraging. You, you are becoming more holy. Whether you realize it or not, it's amazing. You are being influenced, as Grudem says, and dominated by the Holy Spirit. Sharing the character of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> if you're in Christ, you are being influenced and dominated by the Holy Spirit. You and I have ups and downs. There's no doubt about it. But because we're in Christ and he will never reject us and you can never lose your salvation. You, that is true. Why? Verse 6. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Now, we already know that Christ has been called chosen and precious in verse 4. Therefore, when he refers to this word cornerstone in verse 6, we know a chosen and precious. We know that the cornerstone then therefore is Jesus. Because whoever believes in him, that's Jesus, will not be put to shame. The reason why you are definitely going to be built into a spiritual house is because the cornerstone, the most important stone of the entire house, is Christ. And if the most important stone, the foundation of who you are, is Christ, then you are definitely going to be built up into a spiritual house. Not because of you, not because you're striving, not because you're longing, even though you should, and don't ever stop, but because of Christ. So he gets all the glory. Christ is the cornerstone. And this is why it's happening. And so it says that here that we are a holy priesthood. 
we're a holy priesthood. And this just is alluding to the Old Testament and then bring it into the New Testament. Uh, we're going to talk about that soon. But in the Old Testament, sacrifices had to be made in order for uh, in order that you could be made clean annually, animals had to be killed. In the New Testament sacrifices, uh, we don't have to have animals be killed in order for us to be made clean. The sacrifice has been made by Jesus once and for all. And now the holy priests would go in week, uh, year in, year out and do that. And now uh, because of Christ's sacrifice, we are a holy priesthood now, which means all of us have the access that the priests had in the Old Testament, but in a, obviously in a different way, they would go and offer, as it says, offer spiritual sacrifices. And so therefore, we in the New Testament offer spiritual sacrifices of worship and praise and adoration. We come week in, week out as holy priests or kingdom of priests or royal priests, however you want to say it. And we offer sacrifices of each week, worship and praise and adoration verbally on Sundays. As we sing, as we pray together, as we hear from the word together, we're all offering sacrifices of worship and adoration and praise to Jesus. And not just that, but as we leave, we're offering spiritual sacrifices of worship, adoration and praise to Jesus as we live our life during the week. Because Jesus is the cornerstone and you are being built up into the spiritual house. There is no building that doesn't do this. If Jesus is your cornerstone, you're doing that. You may not realize it. You may not feel like you're doing it well, but now that you know, go after it. Um, now, I, I want to spend a lot of time on seven and eight because fun little theological things are, are interesting to me, but I don't have time. And so I'll just leave it at this. The Lord is sovereign. Keep doing evangelism. <laughs> and we can talk about it later. I know there's a lot to it in verses seven and eight, but the Lord is sovereign. Keep doing evangelism. All right, go to verses nine and 10. Uh, here's the next thing. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and put up number three. And here's P last, Peter's last thought. You need to know who you are. One of the key issues for Christians is identity. Uh, a lot of times we don't put our identity in Christ. We put our identity in something else, whether it be a sin or whether it be our profession or whether it be a station in life and not Christ. And when we put our identity in Christ, our pursuit of holiness, I think it, it, it just goes way better. So we need to know who we are, but not only know, we need to own it as in really believe it and live it out. So know and own who you are in Christ. And in just this text, he's going to tell you six things. There's bunches all over the Bible. But just in this text, he's going to tell you six things about who you are. And I want you to make sure you know who you are. Look at him right here in the text. You are a chosen race. You're a chosen race. So there's only one race, the human race. We're lots of different ethnicities. But there's only one race. And everybody's in the human race. And now that you're in Christ, you're part of the chosen race as well. You are in Christ. You're a chosen race. You're also a royal priesthood. We're going to come back to this for sure. But as I've said, in the Old Testament, only one person could go into the presence of God. Each year, it was the priest. He did it once per year. And now, uh, in the New Testament, Christ is the one that can do that. Now, when the priest would go, he would offer a sacrifice. But in the New Testament, Christ is the priest that goes in, and he offers a sacrifice of himself. He's both the priest and the sacrifice, which is astounding. And... 
He's telling us that we're all actually a part of this priesthood now. We're never the sacrifice. That's only Jesus. He's the only one that can do it. But now he's allowing us to be part of the priesthood in that we're allowed now into the presence of God. As it says in Hebrews, we, we come into the throne room of grace. We have full access. Think about it. To the holy of holies, as it says in the, in the Old Testament. Full access to the holies of holies because we're all part of the priesthood of God. And therefore, don't miss this. You don't just... Um, so in, in the Old Testament, it was, a, it was a specific place now that I have access to the presence of God and the holies of holies. In the New Testament, it's not like that's when you come unto church on Sundays. That's not how it works. You're always in the presence of God. As his priest, you're always in the presence of God. You always have full access at every particular place. And not only do you have access to the holies of holies, you are in the presence of God because the Holy Spirit is in in you at all times, which is amazing. This is who we are now. Priests with full access. We'll come back to the implications of that. You can see the rest of them here. We're chosen race. We're a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. He has called us. A holy nation. The next one, we're a people for his own possession. God, since he saves us, he possesses us now. That's not a bad thing. That's an amazing thing. God, who's perfectly good, he calls us his possession. You can see the next one, that we are God's people, that uh, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's sing it. In two, I'm just kidding. So once you, were, once you were not a people, but here it is. But now you are God's people. So we're a people of his own possession. We're also God's people. And here's another one. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We're a holy nation, people of his own possession, God's people, and we're mercy receivers. That's who you are. Own that. God continually is giving you mercy. And the last one, you can see it right there in uh, verse 11, sojourners and exiles. We're sojourners and exiles. We talked about that last week. That just means on earth, in South Carolina, in Rock Hill, this, you have a South Carolina driver's license and a, you're a U.S. citizen, likely all of you, but this is not your home. Your citizenship is not here primarily. Your citizenship is in heaven. Therefore, we're ambassadors from heaven here speaking for the king. Speaking for the king. All right. So that's that particular text as fast as I could get, get it done. <laughs> they bring me to, uh, to key in on what it means for us to be a holy and royal priesthood. So let's look at it. Make sure you see it. Verse 5. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Here it is to be a holy Priesthood. So we have the designation of holy on the priesthood. And the next one, you can see it in verse 9. But you are chosen race, a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And so he calls us a holy and royal priesthood in verses 5 and 9. K.H. Jobes says this. First Peter is the only epistle to give this magnificent title to the Christian community, indicating the collective pedigree and role of the people of God as being royal and priestly. And so this kingdom of priests and holy nation that we see, this designation of royal priesthood, a holy nation in verse 9, this is a direct quote from Exodus 19, 5 and 6. So the Old Testament was written in, in Hebrew, but at some point they decided to translate the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. 
the legend is 70 scholars did it. And so the Greek word is uh, Septuagint. And so se- it just means the, 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 it's called the Septuagint. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. And so the Septuagint uses these exact words that are in Greek here. And so this royal priesthood and, and, and holy nation uh, from the Old Testament, Peter grabs that, that language or, and uses it. And here, so we're called a ho- as it says, a royal priesthood. This can also be called a kingdom of priests. That's how it's translated in Exodus 19. If you're not familiar with Exodus 19, 5 and 6, here's the basic rundown. It's, it's before the law was given. Exodus 20 is whenever the Ten Commandments are given. So at this point, up until the law, God has just told them. And he tells them in, in Exodus uh, 19, 5 and 6. This is just unbelievable. He just wants them to be his people. Just be my people. He's not saying follow these laws. That's in Exodus 20 because they won't do it. But in Exodus 19, he looks at these people and he just looks at them and he loves them so much. And he just says, if you'll just be my people, I'll be your God. This is the old covenant and the old Testament. Matthew, uh, Exodus 19. Now, therefore, if people no, no commandments, no 10 commandments, just listen to me, love me and do what I say. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you, Israel, you'll be my treasured possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine. And here it is. Verse six. You will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Just be my people, Israel. But as you read the Old Testament, they won't. And so he has to promise the new covenant in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, uh, Ezekiel 36. But coming around, since they, they, they lost that privilege in, in Old Testament. And in Peter, as the New Testament comes in, Peter takes that Old Testament covenant language and he's saying, you Christians actually are going to have that same designation of kingdom of priests and holy nation. Saying that you Christians just be my people. Israel couldn't keep the covenant. But now because God is incredibly merciful. He's reinstating his people again to this unbelievable position. Through Christ only through Christ. To be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Which means that we now are a kingdom of priests or a royal priesthood. This is how Sproul says it. This conjunction of kingship and priesthood doesn't just finish with Jesus. Peter gives us astonishing, astonishing affirmation that in Christ, we're now a chosen generation and we are a part of this priesthood, a royal priesthood. Christ is the, obviously a priest and we are now part of this. By virtue of our being in Christ, we participate in his kingdom. We participate in his priesthood as those now who make intercession for the lost as well as for the people of God. We are a nation that is holy sacred, consecrated, and transcendent. We are a nation that is different from any other nation that has ever appeared on this planet. John Piper says this about being a royal priesthood. We all lay people, that just means everybody in the church, and elders, that just means the pastors, everybody in the church. We are all now the priests of this new spiritual house. And our privilege now as priests is to draw near to God with spiritual sacrifices. We've already talked about what that means. To offer praise, adoration, and worship here and throughout the week. Now, our privilege is to draw near to God with spiritual sacrifices. The priests brought the sacrifices into the tabernacle in the Old Testament. But now that the tabernacle is replaced by the Christian church, the atoning altar is replaced by Jesus Christ and his shed blood. And the priests, then, therefore, in the Old Testament are replaced by you. The priests in the Old Testament 
are replaced by us. That's amazing to those who believe in Christ. So then therefore, what are implications for us? What does it mean to be a royal priesthood? What are implications? I have three that I think are straightforward in the text. One, be holy. Be holy. The priest in the Old Testament was to live a set apart life. We're to do this as well. And here's the best part. We don't live under the shadow of the law and law keeping. Instead, instead, because we have been cleansed by Christ by the gospel, we can be holy. We can actually live holy lives. We don't need Old Testament rituals annually to cleanse us, to declare us righteous for the year so that we can seek to law keep. Instead, because of Christ, you and I have been completely cleansed and now you're free to live holy lives. If you want practical, look at verse 1, verse 11 and 12. If you want theology, look at verse 2 and 10 like we just talked about. Be holy. And the good news is, as you're commanded to say by here, be holy, you can live holy lives because of Christ. That's absolutely amazing. As K.H. Job said, by obedience to the new covenant and Christ's blood, they, the priests, are to be sanctified and set apart from the peoples in the world. The modifier royal is apt for Christians know God is their king to whom they now owe their allegiance. The kingdom of God is composed of believers who must now think of themselves as holy. Think of yourself as holy because you are, because Christ has declared you holy. With respect to this world, set apart for purity and on a purpose demanded by God. This is the priesthood that serves the king of the universe. So the first implication is, as a church member, it means this. Pursue holiness because you have been declared holy. Pursue holiness. Christ has already given you that. Here's the next one. Number two. Worship, that's a verb. It's not a noun. I know it is a noun, but in this one, it's a verb. All three of these are verbs. (laughs) Worship. Worship. This means the priest in the Old Testament was the key player in the worship service in the Old Testament. Because he was holy. See, number one, what we just talked about. Because he was holy, he was consecrated, and he was the one that could go offer the sacrifices. Now in the New Testament, we're declared holy by Jesus. And since that's the case, all of us must take an active role in the worship service. I know the chairs are in rows and we're not in a circle and you face me. And so it's really easy to think when you come to Sunday that you're the observers and I'm the participant. That is wrong. That is not the way you're to think. We're all participants every Sunday. You may never stand here and offer a thought, On the microphone. But that doesn't mean that you're not a participant. Being here and singing and hearing and taking the Lord's Supper with your church body and having communication with each other and giving mutual encouragement and receiving from the Lord together in the same room is participating. And so just as the priests were the key players in the worship service, every single one of you are the key players in the worship service. All of you are participants in the worship service. We must see ourselves as participants, not observers. Every single one of you are a key participant every week. As Grudem says, every single Christian can now with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, Hebrews 4.16, and 
in corporate worship among Christians, it should always be a wonderful entrance into the presence of God. This just means this. We worship together every Sunday. The band doesn't lead the songs and worship and you sing just to make them feel like you're with them. (laughs) We worship together. Being a royal priesthood means that you are an active participant every Sunday. No matter where you sit. Here's the last one and I'm going to have to say it's controversial and I hope that no one gets mad. But it has to be said. Number three, serve. Old Testament priests were the servants and they were in the service of God. They were in the service of God for the people. They had very difficult, bloody, busy, time-consuming lives in the service of God. And we are the priesthood. We have and should have busy lives in the service of God in our church. Every one of us, if you remember here, should have busy lives in the service of the people in this church. We all play a role in here. We are to see ourselves in service to Jesus by being in service to this church. I'm going to say it again multiple times, that exact sentence. We are to see ourselves in service to Jesus by being in service to his church, this church. You are called to serve Jesus. And the way, if this is your church, that you serve Jesus is by serving his church, this church. Primarily, I'm going to say it one more time, so we got it. You are in service to Jesus. You see yourselves in service to Jesus by primarily being in service to this church. And that means the people of this church. This is not just during the week, but on Sundays. On Sundays and during the week, as a part of the priesthood, you are called to serve the people of this church on Sundays and during the week. That means the way that we have our our church structured, we need every one of you to make Sundays happen on at Remedy Church. You don't have to be here every Sunday and serve, but you have to serve on Sundays. We, we have five different teams at Remedy Church that make Sunday mornings happen. Every one of you are called to serve the church. And the way that you serve here at Remedy Church is serving in Sundays and serving during the week. Being in community groups in some capacity, whether you're a leader or a participant or whatever. And being on Sundays, not just being in this room, but also serving the other things that make that you can be in this room happen. There's five teams that make that happen. Worship band. Set up and break down that's preparing the coffee and the Lord's Supper and breaking down the coffee and the Lord's Supper. The sound and lights and the computer, the security team, and the children's ministry. Every member should be serving in one of those five teams in some capacity. If you're a member, I encourage you, I encourage you right now to get in one of those teams and serve the church. We need you. We, we really, we've been counting it up in staff meeting and trying to figure it out. And we absolutely need you, if you're not doing that, to do this at least, at least just once a month. If everybody did it once a month, then it would be even be less. Here's where the 
Here's where the uh, convicting part might be, and you might get mad, and I hope you don't. Um, If you're not doing this, one, you're missing out on a blessing to be able to serve the church. And here's the controversial part. Two, and this is what's happening. If you're not doing this, you are intentionally overloading others and telling them that they can take your load. And that's not right. I know of two people. There might be more. I know of two people right now that serve in the Remedy Kids area every Sunday, 52 times a year. I know of two. My daughters, they're 15 and 13, 52 times a year. We have to see ourselves in the service of Jesus by being in service to his church. And I know this is a tough conversation, but right now I'm encouraging every one of you to see your role as the priest and serve. There's many teams and we need you because people are being overloaded. And if you're not participating, I just encourage you to think about it. Just email info at remedychurch.org. That's, that comes straight to me. Info at remedychurch.org. It's really simple. Simple. And let me know, worship, setup, breakdown. That just means making the Lord's Supper, making coffee, or set, it takes 20 minutes to break it down. Or setting it up takes 40. Running sound and lights and computer, running security or children's ministry. And I would say, for where we are, the need that we have the most is the kids. The need that we have the most, they're, they're not stopping coming. <laughs> they're only going to keep coming. More and more and more and more. And so I would ask you and encourage you to take one of the difficult roles right now. So what is your response? What is your response? And this is just those three things. Be holy, worship Jesus, and serve the king by serving his church. Be holy. Pursue holiness with everything in your life because you have been declared holy. Worship Jesus You are an active participant every single Sunday in this room. Sing, take the Lord's Supper, enjoy the unity of the family, encourage others in Christ, gospel them every week, tell them who they are in Christ, do it during the week, be in community group, worship Jesus here and during the week in your community groups. Lastly, serve the King by serving His church. Now, I'm only talking to the members. If you're not a member, you're really kind of off the hook. (laughs) But if you are a member, this is what we're called to do. Serve the king by serving his church. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your love, your mercy, your word. You're so kind to us. You're so amazing to us. I pray, Lord, that my words will be heard and that all of our hearts will be soft and tender to wanting to see these things happen in our church that we'll find uh, within us the deep desire to want to see these things happen because we are a royal priesthood. We are a kingdom of priests. We are a holy priesthood. And therefore, because of that, you've called us holy and we pursue it. You've called us to be active worship participants and here we can do it, Lord. And you've called us to serve your church and help us do that well, Lord. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.